Welcome to Life on the Other Side, stories from prisoners, their families, and those helping them find justice and redemption with Alec Klein. This podcast is sponsored by Republic Book Publishers, which brings you books tackling the important issues of the day and the new book Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over by Alec Klein. For more information, please check out republicbookpublishers.com. In this episode, we hear from Dave Woodward, who was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison before he was later released on probation. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Not a problem. My pleasure. Well, first, Dave, could you tell us about your life before, life before all of the things that uh, brought you to prison? Tell us about that time. Um, life before the things that brought me to prison, because that happened awful early in life. I started, uh, I started drinking at an early age and, and was not controllable and ended up leaving home early. And, you know, from the age of about nine on, that was when I started my journey to prison. I didn't go to prison until I was 29, but those 20 years, that's where I was working myself towards. Substance abuse. Uh, yes. you're talking about? Yeah. And it sounds like this was a, a rough road. I understand that uh, you went quite through a lot, actually, uh, even beyond uh, the drinking, if you will. That you, you, you sustained a lot of uh, abuse yourself. Well, that, that was, that was yeah, um, in, in early childhood, much I remember, there's probably a whole lot that I'm still hearing stories about that I don't remember. So, that was formative in ways, yes. Um, but by the time I started drinking and using drugs, you know, my family had cleaned up and they were on the uprise, and and I just kind of kind of rebelled at that point and um, just got uncontrollable. Now I I had an, uh, an abusive stepfather that I do remember. Um, way, way back when. And there's there's still a lot of things and a lot of that played in, into my crime that, you know, I, I will probably carry a feeling inside myself for, for that man as, as long as I live. But it, it did lead directly to, to some of the thoughts and feelings that brought me to the situation that I put myself in where a man lost his life. Well, Dave, I appreciate your being candid with, with us about all this. Well, I guess we're there. Tell us what happened. Uh, and when was this? What year are we talking about? That the incident we're talking occurred? about 1993, August of 1993. All right. If you could take and, us uh, back to that. Yeah, what happened? Well, it, it probably started two years previous to that when I met my victim and his wife at a at a bar. And then I proceeded to, you know, we had a, me and, his wife had a short affair, and then we just we became really close friends. And th- therefore, I shared my deepest, darkest secrets and um, stuff from my childhood. And there's a, a lot of conjecture about my co-defendant. Um, you know, I can't say how that went about because I'm not her. I just know that what I saw in her life brought back feelings of hate and and just anger that were were not uncontrollable but they they prodded me to do things that probably weren't advisable 
Um, there was spousal abuse. There was child abuse. There, there were things that, that just pointed me back to, to that stepfather that I discussed. And so, you know, I'd get a call and my victim would be out drinking and his wife would be scared. So I'd go down there and, uh, you know, being a drunk, it was really hard to play the knight in shining armor role. Mm. That to me was an easy fix because after the first couple of times doing it, you know, the guy would come home and not do anything. He'd go pass out. So it was, it was easy for me to look the hero without actually having to do anything. So you would go over there and try to intervene? I would go over there and let him know I was there to intervene if anything happened. But nothing ever did. Nothing ever did, including the night that I the, the night I committed my crime. You know, I saw bruises, I saw you know, I saw a lot of stuff, but I never actually saw him hit her. But the intimation of that was enough for me. It was, you know, I wasn't gonna give him a second chance on anything because I'd already been convinced that this is what was happening. Whether it is or it isn't We'll never know, but I, I still feel in my heart that at some level there was an abuse going on there that, that had her scared. And she had children. And she had children, both of them living at the house. And uh, there there had been an issue with a lewd molestation of her daughter. And with that, I saw legal paperwork. So that was another nail in, in well, bad choice of words, but another nail in the coffin. Um and you so, were concerned about not only the mother's welfare, but even her children, and you had documentation that there was some sort of abuse going on, in addition to what you actually saw with your own eyes in terms of the bruising. Yes, yes. This must have been really hard for you to witness. It it was not easy, um, although I have to say that my victim... You know, he could be a good guy and a bad guy. It just depended on when he was drinking, you know. A lot of people I ask in interviews, because I used to do speak out with high school kids in prison, and, you know, they, they'd ask, so, you know, what do you know about your victim? And I, I'd tell them, you know, if I go on firsthand experience, what I know about my victim is that um, when I was hungry, he fed me. You know, if I needed a place to stay, he would find me a place to stay. And if I was willing to work, he put me to work, and I fight with that every day of my life because that—that that is what I witnessed myself. What kind of work, Dave? Um, he did a—he silk-screened T-shirts, and so there was, you know, there was always something to do. And he also cleaned offices at night, so you know, he'd give me work where I didn't even have to be around anybody. I could just go clean these offices, and and you know, it was easy money. So. To me, there was there was a night and day to Dennis that that was hard to reconcile with each other. But I, I think I fed off of both of them because there were times when I was hungry, there were times when I didn't have a place to live, and there were times when I was willing to work. And so, in a way, I feel like I probably used him, but he still stepped out there and was willing to help. And then I get the the backstory that I have from my co-defendant that, that tells me all the rest of it. And, and so the conflicting feelings, um, that, that was one of the roughest parts. So he wasn't all good and he wasn't all bad is what you're saying. Right. Exactly. Like. He, he, he had a good heart. It's just, 
you know, kind of like me. I didn't get violent when I drank, but, you know, that seemed to be what happened when he got drunk. And So, I don't know. I, I handled it the best I could. I, you know, as a 29-year-old drunk, I didn't always make the best decisions. Um, you know, like I said, it was easy for me to, to ride in on my horse and, and be the hero and then leave, and things could go back to the way they were. It was a win-win situation for me. Except for that night in August of Except for that night in August. So what happened that night? Well, I got a call at my apartment from my co-defendant, and she asked me to come down, and I was I was blitzed. I, I, my girlfriend got on the phone, and she begged my co-defendant to, to now just come up here. You can, you know, we'll set you up a bed, and... She said, no, I want Dave to come down here. So I jumped in my car, which, by the way, I was driving with no driver's license, no insurance, no, you know. I didn't do anything responsibly. But I jumped in my car like that, and I drove down there, and we did the same thing that we've done every time. And by the time Dennis got home, we were sitting by the pool having drinks. He saw I was there. He went to the bedroom and passed out. And I gave it a little while, and then I went out. They had an RV parked in their driveway. I went out to the RV and, and passed out. And I don't know what time it was later, but at some point she came and woke me up and said, it's time, and went into the house. Uh, I didn't own a baseball bat. Apparently he did. I walked into his bedroom, and he was laying face down on his bed asleep, and I hit him in the back of the head. And then he rolled off the bed onto the floor, and at that point, I was I was done. You know, he's going to wake up not feeling I was done. So I set the bat down, and I went to leave. And she screamed from the kitchen, and I turned around and looked, and he had grabbed the bat and come after me. And so for the next, I don't know, it felt like days. I don't know how long it was, but we fought. And uh, we fought ugly. You know, he'd, he'd get me down on the floor, and she'd smack him with the bat and get him off of me. And um, at some point, I stabbed him, and that happened repeatedly. Um at the end of the fight, we were both in the kitchen. He was sitting on the kitchen floor, and I think we both knew he was dying. And, and you know, I try to console myself with the fact that I was a healthcare worker for ten years, and I can tell when somebody's dying. That's that's all beside the point. I, I made a decision at that point that cost me a cost me a quarter of a century. Um, I thought he was dying, and I thought that the best thing to do was just finish the job. And so I wrapped a rope around his neck, and I was too tired to do the job myself. And so I handed her an end of the rope, and we pulled, and we killed him. And then we put him in my car and took him out to the country and dumped him like a sack of garbage, to put it bluntly. Um, it was it was horrible. Um, 
the extent of my alcoholism showed in that, in the fact that I was driving the Mercury Links and I had a man's body in the back of my car and I wanted to stop at 7-Eleven and get beer. Well, I'm just uh, one question, Dave, is um, when she handed you the baseball bat at the beginning of this and said it was time, why do you think your response was to go ahead and hit him with it at that point? I'm not sure. Um, it could have been just, okay, we've done this so many times, it's time to prove that I'm coming down for a reason. Or it could have just been, I want to cause him pain. It, it, I'm not really sure. I do know that I, I did not walk into his house with the intent on taking his life. Um, I'm not going to say that, that I was unjustly convicted because I wasn't. It was premeditated murder, clear and clear and concise. As soon as I wrapped the rope around his neck, it made it premeditated murder. Let me ask you another question, Dave. You, you mentioned that at one point or another during the struggle um, that you stabbed him. Where did this knife come from? Well, it was in the console of my car. I'm not sure how it got in my hand. And it's the same with the rope. I'm not sure where that came from, but I know it was there and it happened. There's there's a lot of missing pieces in there that I just kind of try and blur together. Um, I, I wish I could answer those questions. You know, over the years, I've blamed it on her. Over the years, I've blamed it on me. Uh, it's There are some questions I just I don't know the answer to. Fair enough. Well, Dave, so tell me, in the aftermath, after uh, the body was uh, removed, how, how did you end up uh, dealing with it? And then what happened that led to uh, your arrest? I took off. I took off the next day. I went and I had met a girl in, in the psychiatric ward in Central State Hospital in Oklahoma and become good friends with her and her husband. And I went directly there and and I said, I told her, I said, Kathy, this is what I've done. What the hell do I do? And so she just packed a bag and said, we got to go. And we, her husband didn't say anything. We just jumped in the car and we left and went to Ark City, Kansas. I was where her stepdad and, and her mom lived. She was trying to get me home here where I'm at now. Mm. And uh, so we got there, and she's trying to explain this to her stepfather. And so we ended up calling her. We, we ended up doing stuff that I knew was useless because I knew the truth of everything. But he's still wanting to call hospitals, you know, find out if he's alive, find out. And it's like, you know, okay, you can do that, but. Well, at some point, I think we were up there maybe four days. Um, her stepfather got stopped for drunk driving. And I guess what came to his mind was, you know, I'll give him this guy and they'll leave me alone, which they did. Uh, at that point, they still, they had no information on me except my first name and the tag of my car. Well, the tag, my car was registered to the girl I was living with in Oklahoma City. And my name technically isn't Dave, it's Edwin. So it's like I'm I'm still I could have run, I they'd have still got me, but at that point I made a decision and I asked Kathy, I said, What do you want to do? She said, What do you mean? I said, I gotta go back. She said, You can't go back. I said, I'm not gonna not gonna leave Nancy 
to have to either lie for me or be the one that rats me out in prison lingo. Um, so we jumped back in the car, drove about four hours from Ark City, Kansas, back to Oklahoma City. I dropped Kathy off at her house, and I drove back to my apartment and pulled in next to a blue cruiser sitting there that I knew was a detective's car. And I walked in my sliding glass door, and I said, I hear you're looking for me. So you gave yourself up, Dave? I, I gave myself up. That doesn't mean I gave up, because they brought me down. They interrogated me. What they had in their heads was a story about his brother. So I said, yeah, that's that's what I heard, and they let me go. And I think they pulled me down for a second interrogation, and things kind of went the same way. The third interrogation, when they knocked on my door, I knew it was over. I'd take my handful of tranquilizers. I was done. I called my mother said, Mom, always remember that I love you. And I had planned to, to check out at that point. They took me to the interrogation room where I proceeded to pass out on the floor for I don't know how long. When I finally started clearing up, they brought in a picture, and it was a picture of a necklace that I owned. And I said, do you recognize this? I said, well, you know, I, I had one like that a couple of years ago. And they, they said, no, it's kind of funny. Nancy said she just gave you one like this about six months ago. Well, that necklace had been pulled off during the fight, and I put it in my T-shirt pocket. And when we just when when we took him out to the country, and I put him where I put him, it had fallen out of my pocket and gone under his body. At that point, they had me. I knew they had me. They knew they had me. So I broke down and I confessed. Mm. And uh, that was my last day of freedom. That was August twenty-second, nineteen ninety-three. So, in the end, you were convicted uh, and t- of first-degree murder. Is that right? Yes. They did try to get the, the death penalty on me. Right. Along with your co-defendant. Is that right? Along with my co-defendant, yes. And and they acquitted me of the death penalty, and they put her on death row. Which she were... is not on death row now. She got her, her sentence overturned and modified in 2001. It took me about 17 more years to realize that the same thing that got her case overturned, her sentence overturned, would have gotten my sentence overturned. So I filed a post-conviction relief, and the DA ridded me back to court, and we proceeded to negotiate for a sentence modification. 18 years, I did life without parole. I woke up every morning in that prison knowing I was going to die in prison. I did my first two years in maximum security at McAllister because when you had a sentence like mine, that's where you did. And then I put in for drug treatment, and I was sent to the yard that I did the rest of my time on, which was Joseph Hope Correctional Center. I did drug treatment. I got my GED. I took college. I got involved. I, I did and I guess I've got to back up a little bit now because there was a decision I made when I went into county jail. They they threw me into county jail. There was no detox. There were no meds to help me come down. There was nothing. Uh, but when I did finally clear up, I had to make a decision, you know. How do you want to live your life? So at that point, I wanted to change. And inside me, there was a there was a basic change that, you know, had never occurred before. I, I chose to do the right things. How do you count for that? Dave, that that change. I didn't like who I was. I knew, had I not gone to prison, I'd have been dead probably in a couple of years. I drank from the time I woke up to the time I 
passed out at night. Um, if I got up and I didn't have a drink, I shook so bad I couldn't I couldn't function. Um, and I was not willing to quit. You know, it was I don't know if you've ever seen Leaving Las Vegas. That's one of my I can't say favorite movies, but I I, I relate to that because in that movie. He's given a severance package, and he decides, okay, I'm going to take this and go to, to Vegas and drink myself to death. Well, I knew I was drinking myself to death, and I and I was going to welcome it because I didn't like who I was. I didn't like, and so when I when I got, it really wasn't difficult to make that change. It was, you know, sticking to it and not going back to old habits. And so when I when I finally get the chance to get a little bit of freedom, which I got on a medium security yard, I had to put that into action. And I had my snags along the way. In, in my 22 years on that yard, I had three write-ups, um, all of which I pled guilty for because I did them. You got me. That was part of the deal. You know, I screwed up, but okay, now I've got to own up to it. Um, that was something I'd never done in my life. I've never, I, I'd never owned up to anything. I'd try and lie my way out of it. I'd try and cheat my way out of it. But sometimes I would want to run away from it. What were the three write-ups for? First write-up was I, I was on psychotropics when I went to prison, and I had had some issues with a migraine, and so I didn't want to come off the psychotropics because they told me you need these. So I'd cheek them in the pill line, and I'd put them in a can in front of my TV. I got shook down. The officer found the pills. It's a Class X write-up. That's a two-year write-up. You don't come off of you've got three months on level one, and then you don't come off level two for two years. And I did that. Um, the second write-up was for a dirty UA. Uh, and that was Lynn and I had met about a year, a little over a year before that, and she was a volunteer, and I was an inmate, and we knew there were boundaries. And we started writing back and forth, and at some point we both realized that we were nearing if we hadn't already crossed over those boundaries. So she resigned as a volunteer, and I put in visiting forms for her. The counselor approved them, put her on the visiting list, and we got about a visit and a half in before one of the captains recognized her, and they escorted her out. Um, at that point, Lynn was, is, well, she'll always be a deacon in the Episcopal Church, but she was an active deacon. And she, she's, she's not accustomed to the world that I was accustomed to. So her face, when she came in to get her stuff, broke my heart. And I came out of the visiting room, and I was so mad that it was like, you know, it's good. I'm just going to go back to what I used to do. So I went and I got high. They knew I went and got high. I was the only person they pulled up on a yard of a 1,000 people to UA that night. And... We all know it was coming, and I was at that point. I think at that point I had slid back and was willing to, to just screw it. I'll go back to my old, old ways. What was the substance, uh, Dave? Marijuana. Yeah. Uh, pretty easy to get inside. It's pretty easy to get anything inside if you know the right people. Yeah. Um, so I did that, and then I did 30 days into you. I did 29 out of 30. That gave me a lot of thinking time. Um, I come back out, and, you know, I find out that 
you know, Lynn's talked to people and they told her that we're never going to see each other again. I handled that better and just, I went back to doing what I was doing on a daily basis and just, you know, you don't forget, you don't, but you wonder. And then Lynn, you know, Lynn did the legwork on the outside. She made calls. She, she met with the warden. And, you know, the warden, after about after about a year, I think it was, the warden gave us a, a special visit. And uh, after that, I could apply for a special visit every three months. Well, every special visit we put in for the unit manager, I had denied him. And we went above his head, the warden, and the warden would give him to us, which did not bode me well with the unit manager, who, by the way, by the time I left, him and I were... It's hard to use the word friends, but we had a we had a respect for each other that is, is pretty special in there. He's a good guy. Um, but what, but, what uh, happened with the unit manager that he was turning you down, and how in the world did you become friends with him? Well, the second question is going to be interesting to answer. The, the first one, he turned me down because he was upset. It was his counselor that didn't do the job that was supposed to be done that, that approved the visiting forms. And so I think he, he was a little antagonistic at that point. And at that point, I was still, you know, not new on the yard, but new enough to where he really didn't know me. Um, so I think it was just his basic instinct was like, no, you're not, you, you, you played the system, you're not going to get it. And so after going over his head and getting them approved anyway, uh, he didn't, he didn't, there was no retaliation from him for me, and, and I didn't make it easier because every time we'd pass on the yard, I'd make it a point to say, hey, Sam, how you doing? Just know him. But I was getting his go. But I ended up, well, I ended up, he, they switched unit managers, and so he wasn't my unit manager for a while, and they opened up a new unit that had air conditioning on it. And I put in to move down there, move down there, and I think he paid he paid a little more attention to, to how I conducted myself, and I think I paid a little more attention to how he actually treated people. And so, you know, he'd ask me to do something, I'd do it. You know, the guards had asked me to do something, I'd do it. It's you know, get a lot of people in there. That's not my job. I'm not going to do it. You know, he asked me to do something. I'm not willing to argue with it about it. It's, easy, it's easier to just go do it and get it done. Which led to a little respect from the staff and, and the officers. And in the end, Sam knew he could ask me to do basically anything for him, and I would. And the last thing I asked him to do was, you know, will you write a, parole, a, a letter to the parole board for him? And he said he would. I never did get over there and sit down and, and talk to him about it and get it written. He was willing to write it, which is a huge thing in there because staff really does not like to write letters for parole. To put them on the line. Dave, tell, tell us a bit about your relationship with Lynn. I mean, you know, she's discussed this uh, on on the show, and uh, it's a beautiful story. But how how did that evolve to the point of marriage? Actually, the marriage. I mean, we we knew we loved each other. The marriage was was not necessary, and probably in the back of both of our minds, probably not wanted because we'd both been married before and, and 
know, I, I can't attest to her experiences with marriage, but mine were not good. Um, the decision that was made where we got married came to the point where I'm going to die in prison. You know, I'm going to die in prison. My family's all the way in Maine. There's nobody to claim no nobody to claim responsibility for my body. There's there's I needed somebody in my corner, and you know, one of my biggest fears was I know I'm going to die in prison. I don't want to be buried in prison. You know, you can take my ashes out and spread them wherever you want, but I don't want them on prison ground. And without her, I would have been buried up on what we call Peckerwood Hill, um, and I'd have been forgotten about. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for part two of the podcast with Dave Woodward. This podcast is sponsored by Republic Book Publishers, which brings you books tackling the important issues of the day and the new book, Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over, by Alec Klein. For more information, please check out republicbookpublishers.com. Thank you for joining us today. Please stay tuned for our next podcast involving stories from prisoners, their families, and those helping them find justice and redemption. And please subscribe to the Life on the Other Side podcast on iTunes.